I'm Paul Wheaton, and this is my 13th Kickstarter. Because I'm keen on low-tech stuff, I've hosted a permaculture technology jamboree for several years now. Usually about a dozen instructors leading a bunch of builds showing off their expertise. One fella felt you needed to see this stuff. So he took a bunch of video with the idea that we might make a movie. Paul was like, hey, you want to come out to the PTJ and teach mushroom insulation? Yes, of course I want to do that. Developing communities centered around food, food preservation, food sharing. I want to see if there can be a low smoke, low fuel wood kiln. A lot of the way that the infrastructure of civilization is put together is highly destructive. You can't do that forever. We need more people who feel confident in their ability to build something out of nothing. So it outperforms the conventional standard materials. Completely fire resistant. Do you want me to show you the propane thing? This is Pepper the goat. If you get to really be with them, then you see how easy it is. I have hoogles at my property that we have not watered in five years. We have all kinds of things growing how to fell a tree, size the tree properly, how to lay out a saddle notch and cut a saddle notch. He started with a system that worked up to providing like 400 gallons of really beautiful water every day. Sourdough granola, the lime pickled eggs, strawberry rhubarb jam, garlic dill pickles, our kombucha, escabeche, kimchi. The rocket heaters have set aside for me a major impediment to happiness. It had to be possible. And it totally is. We've already, in the first firing, done things that are almost impossible in a wood-fired kiln. Here, everybody's kind of on the same page, and so you can go farther with the conversation. Figuring out how to make the infrastructure of civilization actually regenerative. You get to build things that are beautiful. You get to advance methods, techniques, and schools of thought that make the world a better place, that make the broken things heal a little more. And uh, I think it makes a big difference. Now for the big Kickstarter question. Is there enough interest to pay for the editing? All right, well, that knocked that out. Let's go ahead and also remind you guys, hey, we have a swag shop where you can get T-shirts, hoodies, you know, uh, mugs and tumblers, all kinds of cool stuff, branded with different things from the TSP ethos. And one of the coolest things there are my redneck hippie duck farmer t-shirts. And I'll tell you what, I know black t-shirts sell 10 to 1 against every other color. We have some of our shirts, including the redneck hippie duck farmer stuff, in the um, swag shop, done in a dark heather. And the material that those shirts are made out of is amazing. I don't know why we can't get black ones made out. I mean, it, it, you you would love wearing the shirt as it is, and it still looks fantastic with the design. Uh, as I've been buying shirts from my own store, because I do. I actually, like, the partner I have in this, they give me a piece of the profit. But when I want shirts, I don't ask for free samples. I buy my own. If the shirt's available in dark color, I've been going that way because they're just such a fantastic shirt. So set, should check it out today. Share off the fact that you two are a redneck hippie duck farmer with pride. We have two different designs. They're really cool. Check them out. Link in the show notes today. And uh, remember, guys, you should be on the Daily Mail. If you're on the Daily Mail, you won't miss anything going on here, even if you miss an episode or a few episodes. Because I know a lot of you guys listen to a couple episodes a week. Thank you for that, by the way. Now, you listen to the ones you like, but sometimes there's things in episodes that you don't want to miss. Well, get on the Daily Mail. 
Go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on, you guessed it, Daily Mail. Fill out a form and you'll get a daily email. It's usually four or five bullet points. That's it. I never share your information. With that, let's get into the small batch mead making on the homestead. You know, to me, mead's a fascinating thing. It is one of, if not the oldest, of mankind's fermented alcoholic beverages. We don't really know what the first ever intentionally made alcoholic beverages. We really don't because it predates recorded records. The oldest piece of written material that we have found and actually been able to figure out what it says, to decode it, right, is a Sumerian tablet with a recipe to make beer. That's the oldest known written record of anything. So you could say it's beer, but it's, it's probably not. Beer is more complex to make, and it's less likely you'll make it by accident. And the first meads were most likely, again, we don't know how it happened, but most likely by accident, if you were to sweeten um, uh, water with honey, which would be something that you would think that people would do back then because honey was pretty scarce, but it had a great flavor, and use something what we would call today a wineskin, and maybe just by drinking some of it and leaving it lay around, you get some of the yeast from your mouth, the pouch swells up, you open it up, it off-gasses, you know, I don't think it's good or not. You drink it, and you see stars, right? You see the honeymoon. And you're like, wait a minute, this is pretty cool. And ancient people were good at figuring stuff like this out. So it might be the oldest alcoholic beverage ever created. And we do know some things about it from history. Here's a little interesting tidbit, to me anyway, on mead making. Have you ever heard the term honeymoon? When two people get married, they go off to, you know, today they go off to the islands or something like that. They take a, a brief vacation. They start up their, 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 you know, the rest of their life together as a married couple. The hell away from everybody else. Well, long, long, long ago, you didn't get on a cruise ship or an airplane because we didn't have them. So... The honeymoon term is actually really ancient. And so, yeah, the young couple went off by themselves, and the intent was make a baby. It used to be really important to people. You get married, you make a baby as quick as possible. You want a big family. And what was done as part of the whole wedding ceremony, the father of the bride would gift the couple a month's supply. We don't know exactly what a daily supply was, but a month's supply of meat, probably 30 bottles of meat, you know. And moon, or month, one moon, one full phase of the moon, one month. Yeah? Okay. Honey moon. And it was believed by giving the bride and groom this gift of this wonderful elixir called mead that they would be more likely to early in the marriage conceive a child right out of the gate. And if you do the thing every day for a full month, you have a pretty good chance, especially before we screwed up all our fertility rates. And if you're a little bit lubricated up with some mead, you're more likely to do the thing, if you know what I mean. So, it's got ancient history with mankind. But there's a problem that mead has today. It's an image problem, in my opinion. And it is because there are so many companies that make mass-produced wine that is then back-sweetened with honey that takes tastes like absolute ass. It's just awful. Even people that like sweeter wines, this is not good. And they put the word mead on the label, and because of all the renaissance fairs and stuff like that, everybody wants to try mead when they hear about it. So they go and they buy this swill, which is the, it, almost the only thing you will find in most 
like large bottle shops and things like that. They drink that and they go, that's garbage. And they're wrong. They're not wrong. It is garbage. It's also not mead. If you see honey sweetened with wine or honey wine or something like that on the label of what you're looking at, it's probably not real mead. Now, real mead can be sweet or dry or it can be off dry. So sweet is pretty evident what that means. And it's, it, it is subjective what is sweet and what isn't. And then dry, we pretty much understand we, we have really stripped all of the sugars out, so we end up with a very not sweet, thinner, drier uh, mead. Uh, what we call off-dry is where we've used certain things or we've used enough honey, uh, and it has a, a, a an illusion of sweetness. And I actually like dry meads and, and off-dry. And off Don't like sweet unless there's a specific reason like a dessert mead for it. But there's, you have that flexibility in there, but the idea of killing all the yeast in the mead, then, then pouring more honey in to make it super sugary sweet is, is certainly not something that the ancients would have done. And it's not the kind of homestead mead that I'm talking about. And when people tell me they don't like mead, I often think to myself, you know, if they're not a drinker, that's okay, yeah, I get you. And, but I, I often think about it like when somebody says they, they're a drinker, but they don't like beer. What beer? There's about a gazillion different varieties of beer. When you say you don't like beer or you don't like meat or you don't like wine, and again, if you're not a drinker, I get it. But if you drink, then I think, well, you haven't tried enough. It's like saying you don't like food, right? You, you know, I mean, there's what, what food? There's you know, so many varieties of food. So I do think it's something that if, if you are uh, someone that imbibes occasionally, it, you can find something that you would appreciate. Flavors and combinations that you would appreciate. And the method I'm about to explain to you is kind of limitless. Because you're never risking that much money. You're risking about three pounds of honey and a few other little adjuncts. So, you know, if you're using off-the-shelf $5 a pound honey, you're risking 15 bucks to make a batch, roughly. Uh, and it can certainly be less depending on where you're getting your honey and, and how you're getting your honey and what have you. And then if you like that, you can make more of it. And if you don't like it, you, you, you don't make more of it. And on the economics of this, I just want to kind of point this out. A 750 milliliter wine bottle, we also call 750 milliliters when we make whiskey a fifth. And we call that because it's a fifth of a gallon. So if we make a gallon batch of mead, and the way I do it, you pretty much get a full gallon. With a gallon batch of mead, you're getting five bottles for about 15 to 20 bucks, maybe less. Again, you can push the price down with some certain tactics. A shitty bottle of that gross stuff that they call mead will cost 15 to 20 dollars a bottle. You can make five times that far higher quality and let your mind revolve around till we get to the end segment how that might benefit you even if you're not a drinker, especially if you're somebody that is a beekeeper that has a surplus of honey or knows somebody that has a surplus of honey or has access to inexpensive honey, etc. Agnosium, and think about that. and Think about the whiskey rebellion and why that happened in the first place and why farmers turned corn into whiskey in, in western Pennsylvania all the way back then when George Washington, who was supposed to be the chosen one, turned into Anakin Skywalker and went Darth Vader on their asses. Ask yourself why they did it in the first place. And ask yourself why they didn't quit doing it just because there was a put-down of the rebellion by the uh, militia under Washington. They just weren't so open about it anymore. Yeah, 
There's a reason, because it's more profitable. All right, so what's my basic method of making mead? I'm going to give you this method. I will tell you that I was originally taught a version of this by Michael Jordan, a.k.a. the Bee Whisperer out of Wyoming. I have modified it over time to be easier, faster, and more suitable for myself, and I think for the majority of people, versus exactly the way that he did it. So I start out with a one-gallon fermenter. And my go-to fermentation vessel, if you've ever bought a one-gallon bottle of apple juice, like from Costco or the grocery store or whatever, those bottles. I take that bottle, and... uh, I don't really drink apple juice, but I might make a sizer, which would be an uh, apple mead, or a cider, which would just be a fermented apple, or an apple brandy, which is really a form of whiskey, right? So we might buy five gallons of apple juice and use it with some other things and ferment it out, and it might run through the fuel still, if you get my drift, and then we have these bottles. If you don't, then you look around. Who has bottles like these? Now, I'm a big fan of the Arizona iced tea gallon jugs for water storage. I like the handle and all. Not as great for fermentation for mead. So something akin to your one gallon without a handle, so there's not weird places for stuff to get all residue and sticky, that's your your easy one gallon fermentation vessel. Then you take something like a step bit, you drill a hole in the lid of the bottle, and you take an airlock, which I'll put a link to the type of airlocks I use, Uh, in the show notes today, and you jam that airlock in the hole. Now you have a fermenter, a one-gallon fermenter. I use three pounds of honey to the gallon as my standard recipe. It is going to end up with a mead that is somewhere around 16% alcohol uh, by volume. It could be a little higher. It could be a little lower. It depends on what else goes in it and how you handle it. But you're going to be in that range. And... I use the adjuncts of my choice. An adjunct is just something you add to it. Pure mead would be honey, water, and yeast. Okay? So when we add herbs, we make a methylogen. One of my favorite methylogens is what I call three flowers blend. It uses equal amounts of heather flower, chamomile flower, and uh, elderflower. And it was something I found by accident. And it has... A bitterness and a tartness in, a, in kind of the coolest way. I hate saying what I'm about to say. Some of you heard me say it before because I don't like IPAs. But it's kind of the IPA of meats. I call it three flowers blend. But it's, it's not an IPA the way an IPA is. It just has this offsetting bitterness that's really, to me, much more pleasing than hop bitterness. And by the way, I think if you put hops in mead, you have sinned against mead. Hops goes in beer, not mead, in my opinion. You can do whatever you want. But the adjuncts could be also something like, uh, I I like pear mead. Pear mead is kind of really delicious. So I might take three or four pears, chop them up, and throw them in the fermenter. And then I will make the mead with the pears in the fermenter. And eventually I will remove the must from that to a secondary fermenter, which is another bottle just like it. And leave that behind and compost that. Yeah? And it could be cherries. It could be blackberries. It could be elderberries. And what I have found that works really well with the three pounds of honey to the gallon is around one pound of, of, of fruit. And there's a lot of way to use your fruit in your meats. But the easiest thing you can do 
is take your pound of fruit. If it's going to be, you know, apples or something, go ahead and cut it up in advance. Throw it in a Ziploc bag and throw it in the freezer for a couple days. Let it freeze solid. Then take it out of the freezer, let it defrost, put it in your fermenter. You can put it in your fermenter before it defrosts. If it's not all stuck together, by the way, let it defrost in the fermenter. And if you do that, what happens, and this is why if you froze an apple and went to eat it, it's not a very pleasing experience. There's water in the cells of these fruits. And when it freezes, water expands. And if I took a glass bottle, filled it up with water, put a lid on it, and froze it, you know what happens. The glass bottle shatters. Well, the individual cells in your your apple, your pear, your blackberry, whatever, they rupture when you freeze them. Now, this isn't good if you want to eat them, particularly anyways a fresh fruit. But if you put it into a mead, then you get an excellent extraction. Another option is dehydration or freeze drying. You will now. What you should do though is you, if you're going to do one pound to the gallon ratio or your fruit, you should weigh the fruit or whatever it is before you dehydrate or before you uh, freeze dry it. And I would not hesitate to push the number higher because your volume will reduce. One of the reasons this works so well with freeze drying and dehydrating is it's another form of what happens when you freeze, cell rupturing, and as it rehydrates, you get a really good extraction of flavor. Those are some little hacks that you can do. Uh, I use two strains of yeast, uh, Cuvée and Pasteur Blanc, and I will have links in the show notes for both of those as well today. Now, I will tell you straight out of the gate, there's a lot of things I do that all of the experts in all of the online groups say will make your meat taste like a Band-Aid or don't matter, you shouldn't do it, it doesn't work. They're wrong, and they're wrong because I've been doing this this way since 2015. That's eight years. If I was going to have any of the horrific problems these people foresee, then I would have had them by now. And most people that try my mead tend to prefer it to just about any other mead that they've had. And I think one of the reasons is that if you use enough to get your flavor out of your adjuncts and your honey, that a dry mead ends up being more pleasing to the palate because a sweet mead is very cloying. And so the, the two strange of yeast are one of the things that I do that is different and people claim won't matter. And the reason I say it won't matter, and they're sort of right, but they're also wrong, is that the two yeasts that I'm using are actually a, they're the same species but different strains. So like, well, since they're the same species of yeast, you're going to get the same result from both of them. If that was the case, then they wouldn't make both of them. They're different strains. If you're thinking of like a virus, like a flu, it's a different clade, right? So... One of them is extremely fast, and one of them has more stamina in regard to alcohol and acidic tolerance. So what happens is when you use a yeast, it will, it will gobble up all of the sugar, all of the fermentable sugars, which is how you make alcohol, and it will poop out ethyl alcohol and CO2. That's, that's what it does. That's its primary two outputs. And that's why it bubbles and does everything it's going to do. As it does that, that yeast will change the pH of the solution that it's in as a byproduct of its fermentation. And it will get to a point where it will start to shut down the yeast. It will basically ferment itself 
not really to death, more into hibernation, and it will hope that it gets resurrected someday when the solution changes, right? And so one of them is really out of the gate super fast, but has a little less stamina. And the second one is a little slower, but it helps finish the game. Think of it like a relay, but instead of four runners, you have two. And the first runner is a super sprinter, and the second runner is a hard closer, right? That's And, and you're running against a single person. So you've got a two-man relay in a 440 running against one guy running a 440. And the second guy runs the last 80 yards. Think of it like that. All I know is it works. It works better than anything else that I've ever done. Now, I used to be a big believer of yeast nutrient, and my favorite yeast nutrient is Fermax, F-E-R-M-A-X. I will put a link for that in the show notes as well. And I said used to be a big believer. I still am in a way, okay? I am in a way. If I am putting fruit into my mead, if I'm making a blackberry, an elderberry mead, something like that, I don't even bother with the Fermax anymore. There's enough nutrient in that adjunct that the fir- you're, you're wasting your Fermax, is the way I look at it. That nutrient nutrient's not necessary, and I try not to add something that's not necessary. When I'm doing a methylogen or a straight mead, meaning there's no fruit going in, then I use about a teaspoon of Fermax to a gallon of, of mead. Um, I leave about a 15 percent of the volume of the one gallon jug as headspace for that first ferment don't worry we're going to end up with about a full gallon by the time it's all said and done okay and and i'm going to go through exactly what you do for this i'm kind of outlaying it and then i'll go through the process separately Uh, so i leave about a 15 percent volume i let that jug ferment for 30 to 45 days versus the six months to a year that a lot of people do when they make meat in like a five-gallon batch. When you do everything I'm saying today, it is very fast. I have made meats complete in three weeks doing this with some little extra hacks that we won't get into today, like aeration. Uh, but 30 to 45 days is a really great first ferment. And then I rack it. Now, when you rack it, the easiest thing to do is get a mini racking cane for these small uh, batches. I will also include a link for a mini racking cane today. And that just means that all of the sediment from the leftover yeast, all of the stuff that's settled out to the bottom, I want to leave that behind. And the way I do this, where I don't ever get in trouble with my wife for making a mess in the kitchen or anything, we have a little stool that my daughter stands on when she's getting stuff out of the cabinets and all, a little one-foot-high stool. I take that footstool and I set it on my counter right next to my sink. That gives me lots of elevation above the secondary. I put the primary fermenter, that's the first one that's got all the gook in it, up on top of that stool, put the racking cane in it. I put the tube from the racking cane into the, this is just another, when I say secondary fermenter, it's just an empty bottle that's been sanitized. And uh, again, I'm going to go through all of the things that you do to sanitize and what have you in the next section. Just trying to get you through the process here. And you push that racking, that's got like a racking cane, is like a thick tube with a thin tube inside it with a stopper. So when you push it down, it self-primes and starts to siphon. So I siphon as much as I can without sucking up the goop into the secondary fermenter. Then this is another thing that I do that really upsets the purists online, but again, they're wrong. 
I add filtered water from my Berkey and almost completely fill the secondary fermenter. I take a clean and sanitized airlock cap and put it on the secondary fermenter. And I let that secondary fermenter sit until it is crystal clear all the way to the bottom. It's settled out. Okay? I then bottle. And the way that I usually bottle, I have some little two and a half gallon containers I got from, I don't remember the name of the company. This company sells like a bunch of bulk packing and uh, holding uh, things. I can't think of the name of the company. It's a huge company. But it doesn't really matter what you use. But instead of using the racking cane and a bottling wand to, to, to bottle, I will rack it to another container. Okay? And then. I'll use a little spigot out of that container, like a bottling bucket, and I'll just turn the... Sp and again, I'm back to... I've got my granddaughter's uh, stool sitting on my countertop, and I'm bottling over the sink. So if I go over a little bit, it spills in the sink. If you spill in the sink, it's not really spilling. I don't really care how you bottle, but one way or another, you need to get the material into a bottle. And then I, I cap that bottle or cork that bottle, depending on what kind of bottle I'm using, and I put it away to store. And that sounds like a lot, but I want to tell you that once you get this process rolling, you can do 30 minutes a week of work. And once you get the first batch into the bottle, every week you're bottling a, a one-gallon batch, you are racking a one-gallon batch, and you are making a, a new one-gallon batch. And so you can produce over a year... You know, taking your first 60 days off of it. So once you get into production, every year you can produce 50 gallons of mead working only 30 minutes a week. And it sounds crazy, but I did it at a live workshop in my garage where I'm, it's more complicated to do in front of an audience. And I was able to do it in 28 minutes without rushing. And because it's, because the process works like this, you've got, now you've got, you know, jugs of mead fermenting and they're cheap or free because you got the bottles for free either as leftovers or from a friend so all your fermenters cost nothing all you've got money in is the airlocks yeah and by the time you're ready you've now you've gotten to where you're racking your meads by the time you're ready to rack that racked mead is going to take another week or two to clear and you're going to bottle it so now you've got to where you're bottling so all we do that week is we go ahead and make our new batch. And again, I'm going to go through a little bit more of the particulars of how you make a batch. And that will take less than 15 minutes. It really Once you get the process down, it's so simple. I use an electric kettle for this. It makes everything easy. Since it's a one-gallon batch, you can just shake to mix. There's no stirring. There's not a pot to clean up. You, you, it, there is no real work to that. Okay, Then you rack your, your, your next rack bottle so you should be racking a bottle a week and that I already explained what you do so that's just letting one gallon transfer to another uh, but so now you've got your racking cane out you, you you see what I mean you're already in process that takes five minutes right so now we're at 20 minutes then we rack that takes another five minutes we're at 25 minutes and if we give ourselves a, a minute per bottle to fill the bottles out of our bottling vessel that's a minute a bottle we put our bottles away we clean up our, our, our bottling container. That's basically we rinse it out. And we take the way we really should do this. I kind of gave it out of order. I, I actually haven't been making a lot of meat lately. So I, I got out of order with the process. What you actually want to do, you want to rack first. 
That will give you a bottle that you rinse out and get ready and make your next batch in. So you get to a point where you have no need of new fermenters unless you're replacing one because it got too old. And you're, you, so you rack, right? You rack, make, and bottle, and you're done. And you really can do it in 38 minutes. Again, or 30 minutes. I did it in 28 in front of a live audience, not with my sink. So it was a little bit more to deal with. And, and it, it, it's that simple. And that is a lot of barter material, my friend. So let's talk a little bit about things that make my method different, what I mean when I say sanitize and what have you, pasteurize, etc., and why I don't worry about all the naysayers. First of all, when I got into making beer and meads back in 1996, so that's how long I've been doing this, I bought into everything. I got a, I would use either a diluted bleach solution or a sanitizer called StarSan, and I scrubbed everything, and everything had to be sanitized. And, you know, my stoppers for my airlocks, I, I, I put a little pot on and boiled water, and I boiled them, and, like, I, I, I went into all this. And when I met, whatever, Jeremy or something, the guy that wrote Make, Make Mead Like a Viking, and he started talking about, like, stirring the mead with his arm and shit, I'm like, okay, I don't know if I'm going to do that, but I'm going to stop really worrying about all this contamination stuff and all. And I had to think about it. And, and making beer... I only ever had two bad batches of beer where they didn't taste good, like you had an off characteristic. And I'm sure at least one of them was I, I didn't get a good clean rinse on the sanitizer. I don't think I ever got one actually infected by like, you know, some sort of nasty wild yeast or bacteria. Ever. So all I do to sanitize now is I use very hot water. Uh, I keep my water heater at like 130 degrees. So I use hot tap water. And so I'm going to sanitize my fermenter. I fill it about halfway with hot tap water. I save a cap for it, for those bottles, because they always the same cap. It's not made into an airlock, so one extra one of a throwaway bottle. I put it on top so I can, and I shake it really good, and I rinse it out. That's it. That's it. My, my airlock, I run it under the hot water of the tap, and I run the, the lid under the hot water of the tap, and I set it aside, and I don't worry. And I started thinking about also when I used to sanitize like a madman. Well, you you end up having to set things down, right? You end up having to put things to the side. And what are you going to do every time you set something down on a counter? You're going to pick it up and resanitize it. And I realized like this was just nonsense. Like what you're doing is you're so advantaging the yeast of your choice and so disadvantaging any wild yeast or wild bacterium uh, that they really don't have a chance to ever get a foothold. So that, that's how I, I sanitize. Now, when you add adjuncts, this is your tea, um, this is your fruit, whatever, you want to do something called pasteurizing. And the issue, especially when you get into fruit, if you go over 160 degrees for any serious amount of time, then what ends up happening is that you set the pectin in the fruit and, and the mead or wine or whatever you're making with it will never clear. If you get anything up like over 140 degrees for four or five minutes, you've, you've maybe not super pasteurized it, but you've for making mead or wine, you have pasteurized it enough. Sanitizes, we kill everything. or I'm sorry, sanitizes, we knock things back. Pasteurization is where we kill everything. And so, you know, a pasteurization, you pull up to 180 degrees and you hold it there for five minutes. 
You're going to pasteurize the heck out of everything except botulism, and you don't have to worry about botulism in this process. It can't live in a ferment fermented beverage. It just doesn't work. You don't have to worry about it. So we don't need to go to that extreme and set the pectin and then try to use different things to create clarifying agents or what have you. All we need to do is hit it with really hot water and just give it some time. And it will, again, we're knocking the wild yeast and everything back. And so what I do, I use an uh, electric kettle. I set it to 160 degrees, bring the water up to that temperature. I will put a link for the kettle that I use in the show notes, but you can use any kettle. It doesn't have to be all the way up to 160. Honestly, I would probably use 150, but the kettle I use now doesn't go down that low. The key is when you pour it on you know, room temperature or cold fruit, it's going to drop in temperature a bit. So that's, that's all I do is I, I add some hot water enough to cover my fruit or my herbs. So the herbs, I'm kind of making a tea with it, a strong tea initially. And I let it sit for a little bit. And once I do that, then I, I pour in three pounds of honey. And the way I do that is really simple. I set the fermenter on a scale. I zero the scale. And I pour honey in until it says three pounds. That way I'm not trying to figure out, like, okay, I have a five-pound thing of honey. If I leave two pounds, like, it just, I don't, I don't really worry about it. And I just, I know, for instance, how much a quart jar weighs or what have you. So if I have like leftover from one bottle, like a couple pounds in there, I do the math because to get the last of the honey out, you're going to have to add some hot water to the honey jar bottle, whatever, and shake it up and, and be careful with that because you can crack a glass jar shaking hot water. So small amount, just enough to loosen it and get that in there. And then I know, okay, I've added a pound of honey was whatever it was. I zero the scale again, get the next bottle, and I pour it in until it comes up to the difference. So I would come up to two pounds at that point. That makes it very, very simple to get your measurements where you want them. And remember, the people that made this before us, they eyeballed everything. If you're a little more, a little less, you'll have a little more, a little less alcohol. It will still be good, so you don't stress it. But that's just how I do that. And then I add some more hot water. I add enough hot water that I can completely dissolve the honey in the water. And if you, if you keep your water temperature around 140 to 160 degrees in that range, these heavy-duty, like, apple juice bottles, they won't melt on you. You don't want to put boiling water in there. Now, you have a lid on there when you're shaking it. When you open it, it's going to, pssst, right? Like, so be careful. Throw a rag over it or whatever so you don't steam burn yourself, okay? You only want enough hot water to melt the honey and, and cover the adjunct. That's it. Once you've done that, you want to add cold water and bring your fermenter up until it's about 15% from the top. And the reason you need to leave that headspace, when you put the yeast in, it goes like mad. And what will happen if you fill it all the way up, it'll blow out of your airlock, or worse, it'll blow fruit or herbs or some of your adjuncts up into your airlock, clog it, Build pressure up and kaplusti. And if you do, if that happens, I have I've never done it myself. I have seen pictures where people have had it shoot up and hit the roof of their and like splat, like this musty nastiness on the roof, and they have to scrub it off. And if you have a uh, acoustic style roof with the little beads, that's really nasty to have to clean off. So don't do that. Leave the airspace, and and that's pretty much making a batch. Now, there's some other things that people say are really important to do that I don't. 
One is using a device called a hydrometer. And a hydrometer is a little thing that floats in a tube. It's kind of like a reverse thermometer. And it tells you the density of a liquid. And what you do with a hydrometer to make mead or beer or things like that is compute its gravity, and that will give you a way to compute its alcohol content. And so basically, when you make it, you sample it, you put your hydrometer in it, and you see how dense it is. You ferment it out, and it will be less dense because you've converted so many sugars into alcohol, right? So alcohol is much thinner, right, than sugar. If you think of sugar water versus vodka, start with the same amount of sugar and make it into vodka, it will be thinner, and it will float lower because it's less dense. And you use this complex mathematical formula and say, I have made a mead with 14.25% alcohol. I don't care. I don't care that this batch is 14.25 and this one is 14.1. I've done this enough that I know that my recipe is going to yield something in that range. I know when I drop down to two and a half pounds, it's going to go lower. I know I can make a session meat. I can drop down to like a pound and a half per gallon and do like a raspberry ginger thing that's going to be more like drinking a higher gravity beer than a wine. That's fine. I don't care. Our ancestors that made mead all the time and thought it was a, a window into the other world did so without a freaking hydrometer. I don't need one. And the way I look at it, everybody's so worried about contamination. The more you fiddle with it, once you are done, the more problems you will have. Now, I said add cold water. The reason is you want your water, your, your temperature when you put your yeast in to be between 90 and 110. And anything over 110, you start killing yeast. If you do what I said today, and you add cold water, and I don't have a problem with you taking another bottle that you've sanitized with basic hot water treatment, adding your water to it, and throw it in the refrigerator. Have it be as cold as possible. You'll end up, when you, you'll end up having to add about half of the volume to your fermentation vessel. You'll bring your temperature right down to about 90 degrees. And you don't want it too cold, but eh, it will warm up to room temperature. It's going to ferment at room temperature anyway. 90 degrees is kind of perfect for pitching yeast. Now, another thing that people do when they pitch yeast, they rehydrate their yeast and what have you. This yeast is inexpensive. You're going way over the amount you need. If you're making two batches, I would split half of each yeast into two batches. When I'm making one batch, once I open that package, I, I know that the yeast, its quality begins to decline. I just dump them both in there. It's stupid cheap. It's under a buck a, a bottle when you do it that way. Can you use a different yeast, only one of my yeast? Yes, absolutely. Just if you really want to take a three pound to the gallon to its potential, it's the best combination that I've found. So all I do is check the temperature. I've gotten to where I can pretty much put my hands on the side of the plastic bottle and go, it's a little bit hot, and give it half an hour with the air cap on it so it doesn't have stuff settling into it. Uh, and then, I'll, okay, yeah, and I'll throw it in there. You can also take an E-Tech City uh, thermal gun, a thermal thermometer gun, and just point it in and check the service temperature. I'll put a link to the E-Tech City thermometer in the show notes as well today. You don't need it, but if you want to be sure, and it has other purposes in the write-up that you'll read on it if you click the link in the show notes, we'll tell you why you might want one of these beyond that. But it's just a, it's a great little tool to have anyway. Also, there's a lot of people that cold crash. Cold crash means we take that mead that's in its secondary fermenter, and to really get it crystal clear, we put it in a refrigerator. And when you do that, it just drops everything, and you end up with a crystal clear mead. I generally don't cold crash, and there's two reasons. 
Usually if a mead has not cleared, it's not done yet. And when you bottle it and you seal it, at best it will carbonate. At worst, it will explode. At somewhere between the two, it will partially carbonate. Sparkling meads are great. I'm not going to get into how to make a sparkling mead today. Usually you add some more sugar right when you bottle, and you do it by a calculation. You can look up how to do that if you want to, and make a sparkling mead like a mead champagne. Um, and those are fantastic. And the odds that you will take a mead that's not finished and get the exact right amount of extra sugar for what you're doing with a bottle to get carbonation that's like the right amount is pretty low. It could happen, but it's not very high. What usually happens is you end up with a mead that's overcarbonated. It blows caps off or it explodes bottles. Or it doesn't blow the bottle, but when you open it, it just foams and it's way overcarbonated. Or what I think is even worse from a quality standpoint is when you get a tiny little bit of carbonation. And it tastes kind of acidic and it tastes like it's gone bad. Because it's like a flat carbonated thing, if you know what that's like. So I tend to not cold crash, though I might. There's a couple ways I would cold crash. One, sometimes I make mead because people are coming over and we're going to have an event. And I know we're going to go through a gallon of mead. Well, I'll just cold crash the whole gallon. I'll rack it into its secondary. I'll crash it in its secondary. I'll rack it from a secondary into a, another bottle, but instead of bottling it in five bottles, just a single one-gallon bottle, put a lid on it, throw it in the refrigerator. If there is any residual sugars, it's not going to go crazy at refrigerator temperature. And if, you, if you're doing that because like you have something coming up and you're rushing a batch, what you can do is every day open it, just crack it, and if it, if it off-gasses at all, you know it's still a little bit active. And if you do it every day, it won't carbonate. And it'll eventually shut down completely. If you take that, like let's say you, you served it and you used half of it, and you put it on the shelf and set it back in the refrigerator a couple of days, it'll, it'll pick up and start going again. That yeast isn't dead, it's hibernating. So that's a little hack there. But in general, I don't bother uh, cold crashing because there's usually not, like the reason you're doing it is usually because the mead's not done yet. Right Now, the good thing is if you want a cold crash, you can fit a one-gallon container into a refrigerator really easily. And if, it's, if, if you want to do it and you want it to let it off-gas, what you do is you put the lid on without the airlock because the airlock will make it a lot taller and it doesn't fit in a refrigerator really easily. And then just back your lid off a little bit and then your internal pressure will continue to slowly off-gas and keep things from getting into it. You can leave it like that for a few days during cold crash, and it will pretty much finish off, at least as long as it's kept cold. So that's that's kind of a rushier batch issue. Um, a lot of people are opposed to, like, everyday honey, store-bought honey, etc. Let's talk about honey for a second, just with the honey that comes into this country is actually sugar water and all. It isn't, but it is, often. And, and here's here's where this comes from. A good beekeeper who's collecting honey for sale, like local honey, whatever, backyard beekeeper for himself, what they'll do is at times of the year they will feed their bees sugar water, but at some point they'll, you know, when the flow of nectar is high, they won't. They'll make them work for everything. And then they, they know how much comb they'd put in, and when they harvest honey from that, they'll only harvest... Uh, frames that they've given the bees access to after they stopped feeding them. 
because the bees take the sugar water and they make honey with it the same way they make it from sugars from flowers. And that's why you can't tell that it's, you know, you might taste a difference in pure wildflower honey from a backyard beekeeper, and you will from something they might call clover honey that also has the sugar water as part of its formulation. But the bee is still ingesting the sugar. It's still partially digesting it. It's still dehydrating. It's putting it in comb. It's honey made from sugar water and nectar because all bees work some. And so is it perfect? No. Can you make good mead with it? Yes. I can tell you that the, uh, the clover honey they sell in a five-gallon jug at Costco makes great mead. Does local wildflower honey make better mead? Yeah, in my opinion. But it's not bad. So I will use whatever is available to me, and I won't worry about it. Okay. If I'm worried about the overlying quality of the honey for other reasons, what have you, that's different. But I will use store-bought honey to make mead. Everyday honey, call it whatever you want. Uh, I also really like, as a mead maker, it opens up when you travel. Like, okay, what I'm going to do while I'm here, I'm going to pick up three pounds of honey A and three pounds of honey B that are from this local area. Maybe it's Lindenwood honey. That made some really great mead out of Tennessee. Um, I, I've made honey uh, mead from honey that primarily, it's always primarily, because you don't control a bee. But when the guy's running his apiary and he knows when he's pulling his frames and what they're close to and what's in flow. So when we would go to Sanibel, I would buy sea grape honey. And sea grapes are not really great for eating or anything, but they make a really interesting honey. They make a really interesting mead. So as you find your favorite, your own meads, like people really, I, I really like a mead made with some chamomile flour, so it's a methylogen in, in some ways, uh, but I'm also using uh, fruit, so it's a melamol, uh, making like a Meyer lemon chamomile mead with a little, when you, when you put it in the secondary, you put a little tiny piece of, uh, of an oak spiral, a light oak uh, spiral. It gets kind of a Chardonnay type thing going on. Um, and so I really like that. So I might bring honey back and make that mead with a different honey, and then it's fun to taste it side by side. And so there's a lot of satisfaction that comes in things and like that. There are people that they use a balloon on top of the bottle for an airlock. This does work. What happens is the balloon gets big enough, it eventually forces air out the side, or you just kind of let air out of the side of it and what have you. I'm not a fan of it. Um, I've had a lot, especially with the larger bottles that are easy to get everything into, uh, the, you know, the, the top of the bottle, a lot of times the balloons will break and rupture. Uh, sometimes I have a little tiny pinhole, you don't see it. And as they expand, they break and now you're open to the air. I think airlocks are really cheap. Let me tell you where the balloon comes from. The balloon is a, is a prison hooch making technique. When you, when you ferment a beverage, there's an odor. And it's not off-putting to me, but it's very distinctive. And so guys in prison will, like, take packets of sugar, fruit cocktail from their lunch and stuff, and they'll basically make prison wine in a, in a bottle. And by putting the balloons over it, or in prison sometimes it's a condom over it, um, you only off-gas it when you have to, and there's less of an odor and less chance of getting caught by the guards. So that's where that comes from. Since I'm not worried about that, I tend to just use a dadgone airlock. Um, as far as bottles for your mead, I 
use whatever I have available. I like swing top style beer bottles. 16 ounces are great. But the thing that I found that's the best, and again, the purists don't like this, um, there are wines that have a screw top lid. Right, and especially a lot of stuff out of South Africa and Australia now is beginning to come that way. America's catching up on this. There's nothing that's poor quality about a screw top wine. It's a tradition snobby thing to think that it has to have a cork. The cork actually has more risk of things going wrong with the wine the longer it's aged. And so even if you don't drink wines that, or at all or wines that are capped, you probably can find somebody who does. It's perfect because a wine bottle is a fifth and five wine bottles do a batch when you make it the way that I say. Uh, Kim Crawford is a bottle that, that works really well for this. They're, the the Kim, Kim Crawford bottles are with a, uh, a metal uh, cap. I don't want to put boiling water on a bottle like that. When I'm done with a bottle, I've, I've emptied it, and so either of its wine or of its mead, I take hot water from the tap, I put water in the bottle about halfway up, I put the cap on it, I shake it up really good, I take the cap off, I turn it upside down and I shake it as it empties to clean it out really good. I look at it, is there anything in there? If there's any residue, I do that again. I rinse the cap, put the, I, I put the bottle upside down in a dryer, I put the cap next to it, after it dries, I put the cap on it, put it away for storage. When I'm going to bottle, I turn the hot water on the, the, the sink... I fill the bottles about a third of the way up. I do the same thing. Cap on them, shake them up, set the cap so the, the outside top is down so that it's facing up so you're not setting it on the counter, the part that's going to contact the mead. I dump it out. I set the bottles to the side. I fill the bottles. Leave about an inch from the top on your bottles for some space. You don't want to fill them all the way to the top. Screw the caps on. I put it away. That's it. That's all I do. You know, oh, it's going to get contaminated, whatever. Again, eight years, not contaminated, go away. And here's the thing. When you simplify things, you're more willing to do the thing regularly so you get into, into a production mode. This is way more sanitary than anything people made 200 years ago, let alone 2,000 years ago. It means a hell of a lot older than that. It's fine. It's fine. If you ever get a bad batch, you got a bad batch. And I say to people, I'm like, well, I do all sanitizing. Could you ever get a bad batch? And most people, especially beer makers, will say, yeah. Okay, then you have not 100% guaranteed you won't have one. By the way, making small batch meat, I have never had a bad batch. I, I'm going to, hold on. Not because of my methods, because of what I used. I had one bad batch. And it was bad. It tasted like burnt popcorn. I found at Costco a watermelon juice thing. And I made a batch 100% substituting the water for the water for instead of water using the watermelon juice. I used just enough water to dissolve the honey and then I topped everything up with watermelon juice. I didn't pasteurize the watermelon juice and there was something in it and it was a very off-putting fermentation. And it never got any better and in fact it only got worse and worse and worse. But that had nothing to do with how I clean a bottle or a bottle cap. All right, so that's how I do that. Um, people who say I'm wrong, they're sort of right. Like, there are best practices, and I ignore them, but it works, and it's okay. And if you want to go all the way on all this stuff, you can. But I'm not making commercial mead. One of the things, like, with the a lot of people that are in these groups today, they're running small-scale meaderies, 
and they're professionals, and they think differently because they have to. When you come out with a mead product, the, the, the licensing is a little weird. You have to do more than a person making wine. You have to, like, every batch has to be tested and it has its individual alcohol by volume posted. So they ha and if you're doing commercial, you need to be doing hydrometer readings and all. I get it. But that's not what I'm doing. I'm making a gallon out of shot. So it, it's not that they're wrong. It's just that they're not right either. Right? They, they have their way and I have mine. Um, I'll tell you why I think this is the best method for the most people, though. It's really easy. I have some videos on how to do this. I'll add those to the show notes as well. When you see it done, you realize, like, this is so simple. It's simple. It's easy. It mitigates risk because now you can be fearless when you try something. Will you like an elderberry mead? I don't know. I do, but I've, I've, I've given elderberry mead to people who like other meads and they don't care for it. They think it's a little bit medicinal tasting, and it is. It's, it's elderberry. But I really like it. You may not. But if you made a five-gallon batch of elderberry mead, you got a lot of money in it, and now you've got, what, uh, 25 bottles if you're doing you know, uh, 750 milliliter wine bottles. 25 bottles is something you hate. Not so good. Hopefully you can find people who, who like it for the next thing we're about to talk about. But if you make five bottles of it, eh. You know, and, and here's something about mead. It's alcohol. Yeah? All right? If you ever make a batch of mead you just don't like, and you're also a fuel maker, if you catch my drift, just pitch it into your next batch of fuel and and distill it out. You know, I'm just saying, like you can you can harvest the alcohol that's in there. Uh, let's talk about how mead. I want to finish up with this. How does mead fit modern homestead living? First of all, I think it is definitely something that can be a hyper local product. Most of us have beekeepers around us. We have some form of fruit available throughout the year locally. We have locally available herbs. We all have water. We can all get our hands on the few basic things like a fermentation vessel, an airlock, etc. So anybody can do it anywhere and be very hyper-local with it. And I think there's a huge niche in that, and I'll explain how that works without being you know, commercial uh, in just a minute. You can keep bees. Right, So a lot of you guys are beekeepers. So if you're a beekeeper, you have the primary most expensive raw material that goes into this available from your own backyard. But if you don't, you probably know somebody you can barter with, trade with, or buy from. And keep that hyper-local uh, mentality going on. The economics work out hugely in your favor, and I'm all about the economics portion of things that we do and the time that we put in. So let's just say that every batch you end up with a half hour into. It, it's probably a little more for some when they're getting started. Really, when you get into where you can turn out a batch a week at a half hour a week, it's about dead on. You have a half hour work into it. The crappiest junk mead that you can buy in a liquor store is 15 to 20 bucks a bottle. Good commercial meads. I'll give you a good commercial mead, like Viking's Blood. It's a good commercial mead. Four, 30 to 40 bucks a bottle. Okay? Let's just call it $20 a bottle is the value of the mead that you're making. You're going to have, like I said, if you, if you factor honey at 5 bucks a pound, uh, and if you buy in bulk, you can certainly do that easy. If you have five dollars, and let's let's just round that up to twenty bucks, 
you're going to have about a dollar or two. Like, I'm going way high here, just to make a point, okay? You're going to have like a dollar or two. Let's call the whole all-in 20 bucks a batch. That's too high, but let's just say it is. That's $80 profit, whether it's sold or it's used at home instead of being purchased. It's it's $80 in profit from a one-gallon batch. So your your labor is factored in at about $160 an hour. And again, I'm going high. You can do better than this depending on how you how you procure your honey. Especially if you're using like your windfall apples and stuff like that. I mean, again, I I don't think I have many batches I have 20 bucks into. Maybe some of the three flowers blends a little bit more because I use when I make that mead, uh I use a a quarter cup per gallon, a quarter cup of each of the three flowers. Again, that's elderflower, chamomile, and heather. And the heather's pretty expensive. Uh, so that's a real special thing, and it ages. Oh, my God, does that age. Like, it beautifully ages. But most of what I'm using as far as adjuncts are fruits that grow here on the property. And the, the nice thing is the fruit that's a little bit dinged up, the fruit that has a little bit of a, 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 a you know fruit fly infestation or something, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Will I ferment fruit fly larvae? No. No, 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 don't get me wrong. I'll cut those parts off, but I don't worry about it. You know, if it's a little bit bruised or something, I don't care. Uh, when you're in a hurry and you have excess and you don't really have a good way to, to preserve it, you, you measure out one-pound batches and throw it in Ziploc bags and throw it in the freezer. Just label it so you remember what it is, because you won't. You think you will. And uh, then you just pull one out when you're making it. And you can totally, if you cut it up and you lay it flat when you freeze it so it's not all gunked together, you can totally take a batch of that frozen fruit, throw it in that fermenter, and dump the hot water right on it. Pasteurize and thaw out all in one go. There's no, in fact, you get a, a great extract of flavor uh, for the yeast and a great extract of the sugars for the yeast to attack when you do it that way. So, um That's easy to do. But the economics are just on your side in this. Because there's a reason the ATF exists. There's a re And I don't mean like the entity itself. I mean the fact that it is the ATF. Like, okay, we're going to have this law enforcement tax collecting agency of the federal government. And we're going to have them look after firearms. Let's just imagine, let's just imagine we're creating the ATF today. And you say, okay... Okay, we're going to do that because you're a statist and you think that's a good idea. Okay, we're going to have this federal agency that, that looks after like firearms, firearms manufacturing, firearms accessories, who doesn't doesn't have a FFL, all that shit, right? Okay, well, that makes sense. Uh, and if somebody says, like you're sitting around a table with a bunch of Congress clowns in your committee figuring out how to set up this agency. And somebody says, I, I know, we should have this same agency... Look out after the tobacco industry, cigarettes and attacks on those and all that shit. What? Wouldn't like a normal person go, what? What? What the hell do guns have to do with cigarettes? But you're a Congress clown, so you, you don't have a problem with this. And Congress Crown 3 goes, you know what? They should also look up after uh, alcohol. And then you all agree to it and you create this entity. And you might think this makes no logical sense. It's it's evil, in my opinion, but it makes perfectly logical sense. The three biggest commodities in the world, when currencies fail for barter, are alcohol, tobacco, and firearms. 
If you were in Moscow in 1985 and you were trying to get a, a cab to pull over holding up ruples, good luck. If the guy needed a few bucks, if he felt like giving somebody a ride, but a lot of times that cab, cab guy would go flying past you. Doesn't care. Hold up, 1985 Moscow, a pack of Marlboro Reds. And that cab driver might run you over by accident pulling over as fast as they could. It, and it didn't matter if he smoked or not. It, it had incredible value in the Soviet Union. It was hard to get. Levi's jeans had incredible value as, as well. Alcohol, tobacco, and firearms. They, I watched a thing on these old ladies that live in around the area around Chernobyl that didn't leave. And like every single one of them, they're like, well, how do you survive here? And they're like, oh, I grow my garden and I make moonshine. Right? Like incredible value. Being able to make alcoholic beverages, stores in, 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 in essentially forever. And the higher the alcohol, the less container for transportation. That's why distilling became so big in the United States during Prohibition. This country didn't drink a lot of liquor, whiskey, gin, vodka prior to Prohibition. We were primarily beer and cider and wine was what was drank in the country. In fact, a lot of the cocktails today exist because the first like you know ramp up of distilling really sucked, especially vodkas and gins, which were the fastest thing to make. So there's this historical concept that cigarettes and tobacco products and firearms and ammunition and alcohol always have value, and they do. And they're also heavily taxed. That's the other commonality. Because the ATF is a tax enforcement agency. That's what it says in their own charter. So with all that said, there is some validity to, let's just say in a shit at the fan, being able to produce a commodity that is proven through history to have value. Now, is it legal for you to sell your meat? No, totally not, and you shouldn't do it. You totally shouldn't do it. Jack's saying you shouldn't do it. I am saying, though, that maybe you have a friend, and maybe you give him some of your meat, and maybe he gives you something else. And maybe there's no direct correlation, at least you know officially, between that, the, that gifting. There's nothing that prevents me from legally saying to my friend, hey, man, here's two bottles of mead. And just to completely you know, freak out the ATF, there's nothing from uh, that prevents him from saying, hey, that was really nice, thank you, that's done. Oh, here's two boxes of 30-06 I reloaded for you last week because I like you and you're my friend. right? And, and there, there's, you can take commerce where you want from there in your head. I'm just saying, like, you know, I've seen people sell meat out of the back of a, of a, of a car, of a trunk of a car. Right? And I'm not, don't, you've you got to figure that out for yourself. I'm just saying that there's a value in being able to produce this. And there are legal pathways to do like micrometeries and stuff like that that you might want to pursue after you learn from the craft of home mead making, just so we can all be kosher. But there's also another way to look at this. I've told the story so many times, I almost hate telling it again, but the study of Buddy Shoemaker. Back in the 1970s and 80s, there was a gentleman that lived just a few houses up the road from my grandfather. His name was Buddy Shoemaker. And Buddy Shoemaker was a country winemaker. As far as I know, and I was a kid, so what do I know? Buddy Shoemaker never sold a bottle of wine for a dollar in his life. But he got everything he could have ever wanted out of that community. He had the most social... Here I am, a 50-year-old man, who remembers this guy from when I was a high school teenager, 
in the 1980s, and I'm sitting here in 2023 telling his story again. Imagine the impact this man must have had. And the way he worked was you brought him your stuff, your blackberries, your raspberries, your rhubarb. He made rhubarb wine. This guy would make wine out of anything. He made dandelion wine if you'd go out and pick the dandelions right, you know. But my grandfather grew these really amazing grapes, and I would take these grapes to him, and he would give us half the wine, and he would keep half the wine. Yeah, nobody ever bothered the guy. And the guy could make a phone call and get something done like that. Yeah. And he had his whole little commerce thing going, skirting the law. And I would say that in some ways, like, I know this guy was making wine before it even became legal to make wine at home, and nobody cared. Just saying. You could be a modern buddy shoemaker. There's ways, there's ways that you can leverage a skill like this into a tremendous amount of things that you can do. And, you know, maybe you serve me, but you don't charge for it. That's another way to look at this. Like, there are people that they do like a dinner at their home, and they charge for the dinner, but they give the meat away. Uh, There's nothing that prevents me from pouring you a cup of mead when you come to my house. We completely have not, you know, violated the law. I'm not advocating violating the law. I'm just saying to maybe be creative here. And think about how this fits into an overriding homestead philosophy. Now, I'll tell you who gets in trouble for things like that. The person who goes on Facebook and makes a post and says, I have five different kinds of mead for sale. Right? That's the kind of person that ends up with a door knock from the ATF. And that's stupid, and you should not. I'm saying, for real, I'm not wink, wink, nod, nod here. I'm saying, don't do that stupid shit. I'm saying, don't go commercial with mead without a license. I am saying that it buys a lot of favors. It buys a lot of favors. And that's a big part of homesteading in parallel economies is not just financial capital, which is well understood, but social capital. That's one thing that meat is, is a social capital thing like Buddy Shoemaker. It's also experiential capital. It's knowledge, right? It's intellectual capital. And there's more than one way to leverage intellectual capital into financial capital. Sure, you can use your intellect to make your mead and then sell it on the black market or the gray market. Um, or you could run once a month home mead-making workshops and people bring their own stuff and make their own mead and take it home and you charge them for the education. There are other things you can come up with, I am sure, here. But there is a, a tremendous value. That's why there is a tax enforcement agency that oversees these three particular things. And if you've never thought about why the ATF exists before as an alcohol, tobacco, and firearms tax enforcement agency, that's why. Because throughout history, in the decline of a currency, this is where money comes from. This I started out talking about the Whiskey Rebellion. For those that don't know their early American history, George Washington had barely become the first president of the United States when they decided to implement a tax on whiskey. You know, after they just fought for tax freedom, they implemented a tax. And in western Pennsylvania, there were a group of farmers who had been making whiskey and selling it because the whiskey was worth a lot more than the corn. Old school moonshine, basically, yeah. And Washington, to be fair, mustered the militia and himself rode with them out and put down the whiskey rebellion. And then, you know, 
Pennsylvania and Kentucky. Some people call it Pennsylvania. And it has moved west and south and kept making it. And a fine moonshining tradition was created. Right? And then, you know, it really became a thing during Prohibition and even after it because of the whole thing. Yeah? So it's just, I'm just saying, if the whole world fell apart, this might be a good skill to have. And in the meantime, you get to drink something, this is the important part, you cannot buy. The type of mead that I talked about making today cannot be purchased. It's not made commercially. You can't make mead commercially in one-gallon batches successfully. You can't do it. It's not doable. It has to be done differently. You can't get the craftsmanship, in my opinion. And, and the individual batch variants, I think, is a wonderful thing that the rigorous way that it is enforced from a licensed level for a producer kind of drums that out of it. You know, um, wines, people still put a lot of, a lot of emphasis on vintage. Like the two, two bottles of wine from the same grapes on the same vineyard made by the same company but one's a you know a 2014 and one's a 2016 and yet one's a little bit older and maybe you know age is preferable or whatever but in the end there there's definitely like you know an, an expert a sommelier would say that oh, that 16 or that 14 was so superior vintage there's less of that in mead and not as little of as is there in beer it's kind of in a middle ground but you have that in every batch that you make and I just think it's a really cool skill and something you can really enjoy and you can learn a lot about chemistry and science and, and you know, just plain old. And I don't know what the word for it is. It's not brewing and it's not venting. It's closer to venting than brewing. So we'll call it venting mead, just like venting to make wine. Anyway, I hope you guys enjoyed that show or today's show. If you did, tune in Monday. We'll be back with a listener uh, Q&A show. Expert panel, expert council shows will return Friday next week, no matter how hard I have to shake the piker's tree. And real quick, before I sign off for the weekend, guys, I want to remind you that you can always help support us by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. The item of the day today is actually the one that I had for Monday and Tuesday this week as well. I'm bringing it around because it's still on sale. It's the Incuview, I-N-C-U-V-I-E-W, Incuview All-in-One Automatic Egg Incubator. This is the best home-scale incubator I have found for the money on the market, and that's when it normally sells for like $210, $215. It's on sale this week for $160. I don't know how long that's going to last. Uh, this has gone in and out of even being an inventory. I guess they're trying to make a big hit on their sale here because... You know, we're entering March. This is like prime time for hatching eggs and whatever. And then that kind of wanes for people uh, as you go later into the year. So they're probably hitting it with that. If you don't own an incubator and you want an incubator, get this one and get it now. I'll leave it at that. You can find it at the survivalpodcast.com. It'll be in today's show notes, or you can just scroll down a bit and you'll find it. Remember, Paul Wheaton's awesome Kickstarter. Get on that notification list. Get on my daily mail if you're not on it already. And if you want to suggest a topic for the show, if if you want to provide a question or a piece for a, a feedback show, anything like that, I read all my email. I don't answer it all. I can't. But I read every single email. Now, if you write me 87 paragraphs, I may not read it all. But I read every single email that comes to me, at least scanned. So be brief, bottom line up front. But TSPC in the subject line, as long as that's there, I will, I will find that email even if the spam box eats it. 
and I will pay attention to it, and you might hear your question on the air or your topic suggestion as a full-scale show. Anytime you want to get in touch with me, always TSPC on the subject line. Email should be easy enough to figure out. Jack at the Survival Podcast. Dot com. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get you up or even if they don't. Are they going to bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house the American way. A dollar down, a dollar a month, and you never have to pay. Show you a better way